Perhaps this is not a problem for you, but there have been times in my life where I become so familiar with something that I begin to neglect it or not appreciate it. Like running warm water, for instance. I do not like to take cold showers. I do not like to swim in cold water. A few weeks ago, I went to Haiti to teach at a conference, and a few days before I left, I found out that the place that we were staying just might not have warm water. All of a sudden, I was faced with the possibility of living without something that was so routine and so familiar in my life, and if I wasn't careful, my attitude about this small matter could have ruined my whole trip. In fact, I could have missed out on the blessing and the opportunities that the Lord had for me to serve Him and to serve others because I took something so familiar for granted. In his book, The Age of Opportunity, A Biblical Guide to Parenting Teens, Paul David Tripp says um, this, the following as he explains some of the reasons why young people do not develop a heart for the Lord while growing up in a Christian home. Tripp says the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. As fallen human beings, we tend to take for granted the things that have been a regular part of our lives. In the physical realm, we don't live with a sense of appreciation for the lavish food, clothing, housing, and health we enjoy in Western culture. We are incredibly rich by the standards of the rest of the world, yet we do not live with a sense of privilege. In fact, we often grumble and complain because we have enough. One of our teenagers will open the door of a fully stocked refrigerator and moan that there is nothing to eat. Mom and dad, look at me. Look at me. Do not give that look to your child at the moment, okay? Just, we're not going to exasperate our children to this right now. Trip goes on. This dynamic is surely present in the spiritual realm as well. Somehow we need to break through the ordinariness that characterizes Christianity for our teenagers. We need to help them appreciate what a gracious privilege it is to be born into a family of faith. We need to help them see that the normality of their Christian home is anything but normal in this world. Rather, it is the act of a sovereign and loving God who has literally harnessed the forces of nature and the course of human history so that we would come to know him and his truth. End quote. Now, I highly recommend this book if you are in the middle of teenage years or about to be. Grandparents, I think it would be helpful to you as well as you continue to help leave a legacy of following the Lord in faith in Jesus. Today, though, as we continue our series, God's Way, I have the privilege of getting to walk with you through a passage that, according to Pastor Wayne's note to me not long ago, says it's one of the most beloved, beloved passages in the New Testament. You've probably read it. You've heard sermons on it. If you've ever attended a wedding, even a wedding of non-believers, you have probably heard this passage read or spoken. In fact, I used it in a wedding just a couple of weeks ago. I would guess most listening to this message today are familiar with this passage. And since I know that what Mr. Tripp said about teenagers also applies to you and I at any age at different times, I want to make sure that we are ready to tackle this passage. Let us not flippantly dismiss the text today simply because we think we have it figured out because we've read it hundreds of times. But let's trust the Spirit to move in our hearts and to show us a more excellent way. So if you would, let's take another moment and ask the Lord for his help. Father in heaven, 
At times in our flesh, we, we get arrogant and flippant in how we approach your word. God, we become, become so familiar with texts that we have read over and over and listened to over and over that we just dismiss and think we've got them figured out, and I pray that you would help us to not do that today, but that you would open our hearts and our minds to see your truth, that it would be fresh to us today so that we may go out learning what it means to love as you love. And all God's people said, amen. Are you ready? All right. We have learned in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians that all who believe in Jesus have been gifted by God in different ways. We have been placed in the redeemed community with specific gifts that we should use to edify and serve one another. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12, we saw this. We said, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into the one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When we come to faith in Christ, we are baptized in the spirit and placed into one body. We're giving positions within the redeemed community with different gifts to each of us as the Lord chooses. Some are feet, some are hands, some are eyes. We all have a part. If you remember that the church in Corinth was plagued by division, fighting over whose teacher was better, which gifts were better. And Paul's point in explaining the different parts of the body was to instruct them that they are all valuable to the Lord, even though they are gifted in different ways with different roles. And he wraps up the first section discussing the different parts of the body with a proposal to use their gifts in the best way, in fact, a more excellent way. In verse 31 of chapter 12, it says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul is basically saying this, there is a more excellent way so that you can use your powers, your gifts, for good. There is a better way. Paul desires for them to use their gifts to the fullest, to live in unity with one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. And this more excellent way is the way of love. The way of love. And as we get into the discussion of love, I think the Interpreter's Bible Commentary describes the agape love that Paul describes in this text well. Commentary says this, it says, what he, Paul, is talking about is not the human quality of benevolence, but the divine graciousness revealed in Christ. It is quite true that the English word of love has many lower associations. Agape is not to be confused with sensual attraction for the opposite sex. It is much more than the sentimentality which binds together those who are kin or of kindred interests. The mutuality which our pragmatists recommend falls short of agape. For the height of this love is love for enemies, which is anything but an experience of mutuality. Agape is another kind of love which roots in the undeserved goodness men have received in Christ, end quote. Let me read that last line again. Agape is another kind of love which roots in the undeserved goodness men have received in Christ. The undeserved goodness men have received in Christ. Let's just, let's just 
think about that statement for just a moment. All the things that you have done in your life, every lie that you have told, everything that you have stolen, every person that you have hurt, everything that you have done to rebel against the God, against the God of heaven, which has separated you from him, everything you did, he took care of. And he showed us a way, and he bridged the gap with his death on the cross and his resurrection, and he brought us from death into life. He gave us undeserved goodness. That's the love that we're talking about. That's the agape love of Christ, and this love should lead us to live boldly, to use our powers for good, using the gifts that he has granted to us to serve him and to serve others. But we can forget that love. And if we do that, if we try to use the gifts he's given us, we try to do the things on our own power without pouring out the love on others, then we live a life that is plagued with emptiness. And beginning in verse one through three, Paul explains this emptiness of life without love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See, I can speak with tongues eloquently to proclaim the truth of God, but if I don't do it in love, then I'm just a banging cymbal or a gong. See, gongs and cymbals were used in pagan worship here in Corinth, and they were just noisemakers. They didn't mean anything. There was no rhyme or reason. They didn't help with understanding. It was just noise. And if you and I decide to speak out of anything but love, then we become just noisemakers in pagan worship. I can understand the mysteries of God and have prophetic powers if that's the gift that God's given me. I can have faith that would actually move a mountain, the faith that Jesus talked about. I can have that faith and I can see major things that the Lord does because of faith. And yet if I have not love, in that faith, then it means nothing. I could give every dime that I have, I could give the shirt off my back, I could even give my life for the sake of proclaiming the name of Jesus, but if I have not love, then I have gained nothing. A life of emptiness awaits if we do not love. Paul wanted there to be no doubt in the Corinthian minds that any gift they pursued and even used was worthless if they did not simply love each other. If they didn't suffer with each other who were suffering, if they didn't rejoice with each other who were rejoicing, then the use of their gift, whatever it was, had no meaning. It was empty. And yet there is a more excellent way. We can love truly if we take the picture of love that Paul gives in this text and live it out in our lives. 
1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, if you would, I would like you to read this with me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It would be very easy to just skim through thinking that we have this down. But I would like to see if I can paint some pictures in your mind because these are the pictures that come to mind when I read these words. When I looked at them again and I got into them, I'd like to share the pictures that are in my head to see if it helps us understand. Love is patient and love is kind. The picture in my head is Jesus sitting with the woman at the well. He was so kind to break down social barriers of the time to address this woman who was in need. He was so patient with her. He knew her lifestyle of being with many men who were not her husband. Yet he sat at the well with her and he discussed life with her and he offered her living water. He changed her life with his love because he was patient and he was kind. Love does not envy, nor does it boast. The picture in my head is Jesus before Pilate not being defensive. I get defensive when I am wrong. Jesus did nothing wrong. He only came to heal and to save and to bring life and the hope. And he is standing before Pilate being accused of wrongdoing. If anyone has a reason to boast, it was Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And yet what we see in Philippians 2, 6 races, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Love does not envy or boast. Your Lord did not envy or boast. He did not get defensive. He simply cared. And he loved. And he was humble. And he went to the cross for you and I to show us the ultimate love. Love is not arrogant nor rude. I think of Jesus with Thomas. Remember Thomas? Thomas was one of the disciples and after the resurrection, the disciples had seen Jesus, but Thomas wasn't there with them the first time. And so he didn't believe. He's like, I'm not going to believe that until I see it firsthand myself. John 20, 26 through 27 records this. says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. This story still kind of scares me sometimes. Can you imagine being in a closed room, talking to your friends, and all of a sudden this guy just says, hey, and it's not just any guy, it's Jesus. Hey guys, how you doing? Still kind of scares me a little bit.
Jesus wasn't arrogant or rude. He knew Thomas's weakness. He knew Thomas was struggling to believe. And he didn't lord it over him. He just simply met him in his weakness and he showed him that he was faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus wasn't arrogant nor rude. He just simply walked in to a guy who was in need and says, here, see for yourself. I'm right here. You need to believe me. I'm with you. He wasn't rude. He wasn't arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. I think of Jesus in the garden. He's praying to his father for another way to save the world. Lord, is there, there's got to be another way. Sweating blood in the process. He's simply committing then to do it God's way, though. In the process, he just says, but not my way, yours be done. He submitted humbly and unselfishly. He submitted graciously because he did not insist on his own way. Because agape love does not insist on my own way. It looks out for other people first. Just as Jesus did. Not irritable or resentful. I think of Jesus pulling Peter back out of the water after he began to sink for losing focus. Remember that? Peter jumps out of the water. The Lord says, come on. He's walking and all of a sudden he gets scared about the winds and the waves, everything that's going on and Peter loses his sight and faith in Jesus at the moment and he begins to seek and Jesus reaches down and says, I got you. He didn't lecture him out of anger or frustration but he just reminded him that there was no reason for, to doubt. I've got you, Peter. I have you in my hand. You just have to look at me and follow me. He wasn't irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrong, but rejoices in the truth. I think of Jesus with Peter again. This time, though, it was after the resurrection. And remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times. But when Jesus spoke to him in this famous, do you love me, chat? Jesus never brought up the wrong. He simply charged him to live and to care for his people that is rejoicing in truth. He knew Peter was going to be instrumental in the beginning of the church, but he didn't beat up the disciple for his sin. He just shared a special moment with him and picked him up and encouraged him and sent him on the charge to follow him still, to follow him to his own death. Love does not rejoice in the wrong, but rejoices in the truth. Love also bears all things. The picture of love bearing all things is forgiveness. Jesus offered us all forgiveness from sins, giving us that undeserved goodness that we talked about a minute ago, and we should do the same. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If we are to live and redeem community together, then we must learn, we must continue to forgive one another. How many times should we forgive one another? Over and over and over again. You see, but my, but my husband, he keeps doing this deal. He keeps forgiving him. And my kid keeps, keep forgiving them. You forgive as Jesus forgives you. 
He bears all. Love covers a multitude of sins. We should cover each other with love. We're going to fail each other. We must continue to forgive one another as Jesus forgives us. There is no holding grudges. Love believes all. Now based on all of Scripture, we know that this could not mean that we are to believe anything that we hear, correct? We're not to just take any philosophy and believe it. That's not what this means. However, we are to not be cynical. We are to not be cynical. Webster defines a cynic this way. as a fault-finding, captious critic. I had to look up captious. Captious is defined by, marked by an often ill-natured inclination to stress faults and raise objections. Love is not Love is not the one who keeps trying to find fault in everything somebody else does. That is not loving. It's not. Too many of us in this room potentially are bragging about our being cynical. I just don't trust people. That's why I'm not going to join a life group. That's not the way of love. Love bears all and believes all. Love is not cynical. Love does not look to find fault. Love seeks reconciliation. In a culture that appears to thrive on cynicism, we should shine brightly in a different manner. We should love as Jesus loves, patiently, kindly, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, not looking for the faults in one another, but covering the sin with love. Because love hopes all things too. Agape love is hopeful. It leads us to, to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. We are to always be rejoicing because love brings hope. Love has already won. You understand that, right? Jesus already paid it all. We've already won. We have already gained eternity. It's done. We just get to now live it out and enjoy the abundant life that Jesus gave us. We can live in hope. We can rejoice always no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what happened in the car on the way here this morning. We can rejoice always because love hopes. We can think rightly. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, we can think about those things because love has hope. We can have positive thinking about what's right and good and true because love conquers all. Does that define you this morning? Love never ends. Romans 8, 38-39, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take us away from his love. If he has brought us from death into life and redeemed our souls, then nothing can take us away. He can't be separated from him again. 
because his love never ends. It is always faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The psalmist says, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting. This is the picture of agape love. The picture of a more excellent way. It is full. It is beautiful. It's not empty at all. And it is the way that you and I should love instead of chasing after the temporal and after the empty way. Paul continues his exhortation of the more excellent way by by highlighting this temporary versus eternal thought. When he mentions the perfect. Verses 8 through 10. It says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Hey, Corinthians, all this other stuff that you're focusing on, the gifts that you're fighting over, I want you to focus on the eternal. These things are going to pass Focus on what will last. Paul uses a couple of examples to hammer the point home. Verse 11 and 12, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I like how Dr. Tom Constable describes uh, these illustrations He says this in his commentary. Paul compared our present phase of maturity to childhood when I was a child. And that of our latter phase when we are with the Lord to adulthood when I became a man. It is characteristic of children to preoccupy themselves with things of very temporary value. Childish things. Likewise, the Corinthians took great interest in the things that would soon pass away. Namely, knowledge, tongues, and prophecy. A sign of spiritual maturity is occupation with the things of eternal value, such as love. Again, Paul was stressing the difference between the present and the future. Paul's second illustration is that of an incomplete picture in a mirror. Corinth was known for his mirrors, so this made sense to the Corinthians. Listen to what Dr. Tom Constable says. It was that now we see indirectly in a mirror, but then we shall see directly face to face. Today, we might say that we presently look at a photograph, but in the future, we will see what the photograph pictures, but in full color, motion video, and surround sound. End quote. Look at the things that are eternal. Paul wraps up this section describing the more excellent way with one more statement to secure his point. Verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. While the need for tongues and prophecies will cease, faith, hope, and love will remain. All three of these are absolutely important, but love is prominent. For how would we have faith without the love of Christ? How could we have hope if not for the love of God demonstrated to us through the gift of his Son? Love is prominent. Do you ever think about your funeral service? I mean, I don't mean to be morbid, but do you? 
I mean, do you ever wonder who's going to come? Do you ever wonder what people will say about you? I do. In fact, in my lifetime, I've been asked a number of times what I would like written on my tombstone. What do I want to be known by? And my answer for for decades has been, I wanted to say he was faithful. I wanted to say that he was faithful. And I said that because the words that I'd long to hear from Jesus is well done, good and faithful servant. And so I want to be known in this world how I lived. I want to be known that I was faithful to God and his word and what he wanted me to do with my life. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? I mean, it is what we long to hear Jesus say. I think it would look nice on a tombstone to, to, to carry a legacy of people walking by to say, hey, this guy was faithful. Maybe they're asking a question. But after walking through this familiar text this week, my heart is breaking because now I'm convinced that the legacy that, that I want to leave is not just that I was faithful, but that I was loving Because that's the more excellent way to be known by love that is pure, to be known by love that is holy, love that is the way that Jesus loved. And I am convinced now more than I was even a week ago of this passage, verse 35 of chapter 13 of John. It says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Pastor Wayne shared a song with me this week as I was preparing, thinking it might be helpful for us to to think and process this text. The song is entitled, How Do You Love? And it was written by the band Shine Down. Now, I am not sure whether lead singer Mr. Smith or his band members stand in their beliefs. I have no idea if they're believers in Jesus. I have guesses. But I think that this song song should rock our hearts a bit. And if I can, I want to read just a few lines for you. It says, you can have a sound of a thousand voices calling your name. You can have the light of the world blind you, bathe you in grace. But I don't see so easily what you hold in your hands because castles crumble, kingdoms fall, and turn into sand. You can be an angel of mercy or given to hate. You can try to buy it just like at every other careless mistake. How do you justify a mystify by the ways of your heart? With a million lies, the truth will rise to tear you apart. No one gets out alive. Every day is do or die. The one thing you leave behind is how do you love? How do you love? It's not what you believe. Those prayers will make you bleed. But while you're on your knees, how do you love? How do you love? How do you love? If nothing else, I think we can take these words as someone who is crying out to see love in action. who is calling out for people to show what it means to have true agape love. So the question is, how do you love? 
Are you loving like Jesus? Does the picture of your life, how you interact with your family, how you interact with those in the redeemed community sitting next to you, does it reflect agape love showing the undeserved goodness that God has given to you? Or are you still trying to fight over your gifts or your teachers like the Corinthians did? You know, none of us should be sitting on the bench not using our gifts. We should not be wasting our gifts that God has given us. We need to engage in the life that Jesus gave to us. We need to use our powers for his good. But we must remember in that process that there is a more excellent way, and that is God's way of love. God's way of love. And as we close, I want you to take a look at the list of the traits in the picture of love. Which ones are you in need of working on today? Circle in your Bible. Write it down in your notes on your paper or your phone. However you do it, do not leave this place. Do not leave this place without asking the Lord to help you figure out how to love better. How to love the way he loves. Patient and kind. Not envying or boasting. Not arrogant or rude. Not insisting on your own way. Not irritable or resentful. Ouch. Not rejoicing in wrong, but rejoicing in truth. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things because love never ends. How are you loving today? Let's pray. Almighty God, we are grateful for your love. The undeserved goodness that you displayed on your cross, that you were displayed in the power of Jesus' resurrection and that you have displayed by sitting down with us like Jesus sat with the woman at the well and offering us living water and offering us life. We are grateful for your love. Thank you. Keep your heads bowed. Some of you and here may not know this love yet. You don't know this, Jesus. You haven't trusted him as Savior. You know you're a sinner. You know you know you need help. You just don't know what it looks like. I want to offer you this, that Jesus is the way. If you confess through the mouth of Jesus as Lord and you believe in heart, God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And you can do that today. You can trust him today. And I encourage you to do that right now. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to ask the Lord to show you those areas in life where you are not being loving. You're not being kind. You're not being patient. And you're being irritable. You're, you're seeking your own stuff instead of helping somebody else. I ask you to take a moment and ask him for help. Confess.
Father, we thank you that you forgive us. God, help us to wrestle with your truth. Help us to live as you would have us live and not go away flippantly dismissing your truth, but enjoying being held by a loving Father, a good Father who shows us that there is a better way. As we take our offering this morning, God, help us to not give out of compulsion or obligation, but only out of love to see you change lives. In Jesus' name, amen.